The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The King James Bible is an English translation of the Christian Bible for the Church of England, which was commissioned in 1604 and published in 1611 by authorization and sponsorship of King James I. Noted for its majesty of style, the King James Version, commonly abbreviated and referred to as the KJV, has been described as one of the most important books in English culture and a driving force in the shaping of the English-speaking world, including Canada and the United States. Let's learn more from the BBC about what is described as the most influential version of the most influential book in the world, in what is now its most influential language. We begin the story of the publication of the King James Version of the Bible, the most widely published book in the English language. It's been called our national epic, the noblest monument of English prose and rivaled only by Shakespeare for the beauty and the influence of its language. James Naughty tells the story of the King James Bible from its origins in a royal conference through the arduous work of a committee of scholars to its spread around the world through the empire and the missionary movement. We begin the story of the King James Bible with the commission. The best way to come to Hampton Court today is still to take the boat from central London and spend two or three hours on the Thames until you reach this palace of kings spreading out on a long, lazy bend of the river. It was probably by boat that a remarkable collection of scholars and churchmen were ferried here in the first month of 1604, summoned to a conference by their new king. James VI of Scotland had become James I of England and united the crowns on the death of Elizabeth I the year before. And now he was on a mission to put an end to the deep and fearful religious struggles that she had inherited and which plagued her long reign. So here at Hampton Court, he commissioned the learned men he'd gathered around him to give him an instrument to put an end to those dark disputes, a new translation of the Bible. We'll follow the story over the birth of a book that would encircle the world, telling the Christian story in words that would roll down the generations and remain, even four centuries later, one of the great glories of the English language. We're going to talk about the conference that James convened here. How often did he come? How often did he spend time here? The great attraction of Hampton Court was the hunting park. And James loved to hunt. That's what he did. He came down here for hunting, relaxation, pleasure. It's a very romantic place. Henry VIII had honeymoons here. But the reason James was here in the bitter winter of January 1604 was because there was plague in London. So he wasn't choosing to be here. He was here by necessity. In 1604, we get William Shakespeare, who's now one of the king's men, performing in a play here that was called Robin Goodfellow, and we guess that means that he was Puck and it was A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Paint a picture of James. 
We have plenty of portraits of James right through his reign, in fact, so we have a very good idea of how he looked. But the Vanson portrait, which is one of the earliest, shows James as King of Scotland in his early 30s, a rather nervous, wary young man, affable, but with his eye out for difficulties. There's a sense of strain about him even at that stage. Elizabeth died not far from where we are now, in Richmond Palace. And there's a well-established story, isn't there, of, of a ring being taken to the north to demonstrate to James that the Queen has actually gone, at which point he can set off for London and claim his inheritance. Yes, of course, he's very sensible as well. This is a great story, but what happens next is that he gets letters from the English Privy Council, which is rather a better assurance that things are going to work out than just being given a ring. How was he received when he finally arrived? What did the public in London make of this Scottish king who was to rule over them? There's tremendous relief that the accession of James was peaceful and uncontested. And right up to almost the last minute, there were fears that there might be, for example, a Spanish invasion or that the Spaniards might come from their lowlands properties in the what we would now call Belgium. So the peaceful accession of James and the welcome that he received on his journey down from Edinburgh to London was very, very reassuring to the Privy Council. And there's almost a golden era, which certainly lasts two or three years, the early part of James' reign. James was euphoric. He saw that his great dream of a peaceful accession to the English throne had actually been achieved. And initially, at least, it was enormously popular in England. Although very early on, one gets mixed feelings in Scotland about his departure. Remind us how difficult it had been for him in Scotland. James had experienced much greater degrees of turbulence with the Scottish Kirk than he was ever going to experience with the English Church. And he had also a strong confidence in his own ability as a theologian and as a disputant in ecclesiastical controversies. You mentioned 1560, and that was the moment where the Scottish Reformation really took hold. The Scottish Reformation is so very different from the English Reformation because it is a Reformation pioneered by great reformers whereas the English Reformation is masterminded by monarchs with the clergy and theologians very much in second place. So we have two countervailing models of Reformation between England and Scotland. And looking back to that time in Scotland, you can see that his interest in a new translation of the Bible was already being roused. Oh, indeed. He actually proposed a new translation at a meeting, a convocation of the Kirk in Fife. But not only did he suggest it, he actually went on and started on the job himself. He did a, a translation of the Psalms. What we see beginning to emerge here is this very important link, King as the guarantor of the stability and the identity of the English church and indeed the English monarchy. There was uncertainty, what is going to happen next? But there was still uncertainty. And so the big question really was, where do we go now? And really, things were just beginning to become clear when we get to the Hampton Court Conference. James, in effect, was almost given a list of demands. There's one item that is very conspicuously missing. There is no demand for a new English translation of the Bible. That would be James's answer in part to what he was hearing. And what becomes clear to us now, looking back, is that the pressure on him to do something was immense. Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds, like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. 
Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y using the code 30605. This is the moment. James had decided that there should be a conference here at Hampton Court. Who was invited to the conference? And for a contemporary audience, How would we describe and delineate the various factions and the tensions that lay between them? Well, scholars spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to get away from labels because they can be so misleading. Um, The one that stuck through the generations, really, to first start with, is Puritan. What we need to remember there is that that's a term of abuse. They might prefer to describe themselves as the godly. That was the more preferred polite option. And what of those on, so to speak, the other side, Alistair? Well, in many ways, we'd now use the word Anglican really to refer to those who emphasize the importance of the king as the head of the church, but also, of course, the importance of bishops. And what we see beginning to emerge here is this very important link between king and bishops as the guarantor of the stability and the identity of the English church and indeed the English monarchy. Here we are in the privy chamber, the privy chamber being the room that the actual conference took place in. So how would they have behaved when they came into this room? Well, the focal point of the room was the X-framed, velvet-coloured royal chair positioned under a special canopy, so it's pretty clear who's in charge. That's where James was sitting. And we know that when the members of the conference came in and when they wanted to speak, they had to kneel down and humble themselves towards the king. What do we know about what it must have been like in the room? The air must have been thick with tension, with rivalry, with anxieties on all sides, because both sides were very principally committed to what they saw as the future of the Church of England. But even more important, I think, too, for visualizing this, is that, yes, you had James enthroned under the presence, but all of these three days were held in the presence of the Privy Council. So ranged around the king in a half-circle would have been the grandest and most influential courtiers. And you had there on display the governing power of England. So an air of debate, and quite a few of these important councillors would jump in as well. So you were having to please your state masters as well as your royal master, as well as performing for the ecclesiastical hierarchy. What is our source for information about what actually happened in the course of this conference? The best known record of the conference, the sort of semi-official one, it's called the Sum and Substance of the Conference. And it's an interesting document because it's very much written from the point of view of the bishops. It makes the bishops look as good as can be, really. 
and the Puritans don't come out quite so well? No, I don't think the poor Puritan party are actually described in what you might call the official record as the plaintiffs, as if they were being tried in a court. In one of the copies of this book, it's fascinating, you can see that Lawrence Chatterton, who's one of the Puritans, he's annotated it in the margins in his own handwriting at the points with which he disagrees in the official record. And it began with a speech from the king. It must have been a very important statement. I think it was, and there's no doubt in this speech, James really seeks to establish continuity with what's gone before. Not destructive, radical change, but rather wise continuity with the past. He declares himself to be happier than his predecessors because they wanted to change things, whereas I, I quote, see yet no such cause to change as confirm what I settled already. In other words, only change what is necessary. I assure you, we have not called this assembly for any innovation, for we acknowledge the government ecclesiastical as it now is to have been approved by manifold blessings from God himself, both for the increase of the gospel and with a most happy and glorious peace. Yet because nothing can be so absolutely ordered but something may be added thereunto, and corruption in any state will insensibly grow, and because we have received many complaints since our first entrance into this kingdom of many disorders with a great falling away to popery, our purpose therefore is, like a good physician, to examine and try the complaints and fully to remove the occasions thereof, if scandalous, cure them, if dangerous. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette. And I hope you're enjoying the ride.